Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure and actually great sadness as well to welcome probably one of the most courageous people in the digital world, in the publishing world. Scott Cleland is with us today, one of the key authors of the new book, Search and Destroy, Why You Can't Trust Google, Inc., Ira Brodsky is the other author who is not with us today. But one of the things I want to say to the audience of It's Rainmaking Time is that you know if you've been listening to this show that I'm very committed to discoveries, to new knowledge, to introspection, to looking at new paradigms, to looking at consciousness, to looking at business practices, to looking at the far range of what's happening in the world in many different industries and areas. Now, when you're in pursuit of that, you have to be open as well to looking at difficult things that are unfolding in the world, to be looking at the transgressions that are also going on in the world. And one of the things that It's Rainmaking Time does, we don't focus on all the bad that's happening in the world. We focus on a lot of the good that's happening in the world. But every now and then something comes along that we have to examine whether we want to or not, if it's impacting our lives. I just finished the book, Search and Destroy, Why You Can't Trust Google, Inc. So many people around the world love Google and use Google's free and paid services without question. And I have to tell you that in the last month and a half on our YouTube channel, I noticed that there is a perpetual incremental change of terms of service that happen automatically. For example, all of a sudden, YouTube wants my cell phone number. And in order to continue my service there, I have to provide my cell phone number. I have to have a Gmail account. And that means all my messages through YouTube go to my Gmail account. And this is a rub for people that do not want to be giving out their private information, do not want their emails screened and stored and more. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Scott Cleland to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Kim. I have to tell you that any show host, any publisher, including yours, has to have courage to invite you on to be a guest. Because after reading this book from cover to cover, you mentioned so much verifiable detail about the shadow side, the consciousness, the unethical business practices, and the deplorable actions of Google that the person interviewing you, including me, my show, my future, could be at risk forever with the Google search engine services, etc. However, it is still noble and worthy of bringing to light the discussion, not in a bash Google session, but in a very detailed investigative discussion of verifiable facts of really where Google's at in their consciousness, their business practices, their ethics, their protocols. And because most of us use Google without question, without examining it, Google has become part of our everyday digital and therefore life and brain experience. We have to question whether to feed this engine anymore, and if so, how much. So the first thing I wanted to ask you is, could you please talk about the obvious services that are free from Google 
that have in their components tracking systems, the ability to scan and store information without our knowledge? Well, the one that uh, is obvious, that's most obvious is, uh, is search, and people are aware of that one. Probably the biggest one is their ad serving that they don't know, because Google can track you wherever you go on the web because of ad serving through DoubleClick. Uh, because, you know, as people uh, go to another website and they have to wait that, you know, half second or a second or two for ads to, to p- appear, that's ad serving, and Google is sending some of those ads. And so wherever you go, even if you didn't use Google Search or any other Google product, once you get there, they know you're there, and they are recording what you're doing when you're there. You mean even if you don't click the ad? Uh, no, they yeah, they know you arrived. How? On that, on that website, because they, they know um, because you were sending a signal to them, and they want to serve a relevant ad to you. And so implicitly, they must know who you are that has come so that they can serve the quintessential Google relevant ad that is for you and only you. But how have I sent the signal? By arriving at that website. And by um, then, uh, the the digital transaction occurs where they notify that somebody has come to this website and they want to monetize that visit, and Google's the main way to monetize the visit. And so that delay, as as you're waiting for it to load, is that transaction where you're being identified and then they are sending you something. And and when they sent you something, then they also track you because there's also Google Analytics most of the time on that website. And that tracks how long, you know, what you've read, what you um, have come back and read again, you know, what you uh, um, even, you know, they even have a patent on your mouse where on people, how people use their mouse, where it goes, because they believe that, you know, there are um, ways to identify you just by the way you wield your mouse. Like there's a mouse print, just like there's, you know, fingerprints and there's even digital prints. They, they can identify you by knowing your patterns of behavior of where you go on the web. So Google has all sorts of algorithms to identify you because if they can't identify you, they can't do their relevant thing and send you a personalized ad. How do they identify me vis-a-vis my computer? Well, they can do it through a device ID. They can, you know, I, I don't know um, all of them. I've heard uh, um, uh, people discuss that they have, you know, over 50 different ways um, depending on the website and depending on the device to identify you. Uh, one of the, you know, for people that want to know all of the things that are, I, that are collected on them, I have a, uh, if they bing uh, total information awareness power, uh, that goes to my blog, and then also you can get a one-pager, and that lists all of the ways that they can identify you. And it's, you know, really, you know, very, you know, it's remarkable. Uh, you know, and I tried to put it all on one page so people can get a sense of um, of how many. But, you know, uh, everything from IP addresses to email addresses um, that they can get through Gmail or Postini filters, Wi-Fi, SSID, MAC addresses, um, you know, so many other things that they can uh, they can identify. But then let's move on. So that's what we've only talked about, two products. Then we have um, YouTube. And YouTube, they track everything. You know, they, you know, they know who you are when they, when it came and when it was served to you because it's just a different kind of uh, serving a platform. And uh, so they know your preferences. And you know, what's interesting is remember uh, when Supreme Court uh, justice uh, um, was um, was knocked out because people were looking at their videos at Blockbuster when that was made illegal. Well, YouTube knows what everybody watches, what what genre they like, and what they go back to, and you know, what their favorites are. 
And uh, then there's Android. Um, that is uh, the operating system for wireless that's on a third of smartphones. It's probably going to be half or two-thirds in, um, in due time. And they track your location uh, without your knowledge or permission a thousand times a day, every two minutes. And then there's 500 other Google products and services, and many of them have, um, have tracking in them. One of the things I noticed recently, I use a regular cell phone. I cannot find a regular cell phone anymore. They're all going smartphone. It's really scary. I don't want a smartphone. I just want a regular cell phone. What's going on? Well, there you're talking about, um, you know, um, you still can find regular cell, um, um, cell phones, but they tend to be, you know, targeted in a different way. And, you know, most things are going digital, and then um, they believe most people are ultimately going to want to have Internet access, and they also want to go in that direction because that's where there are more apps and there's more data plans and all that. So um, uh, it's more lucrative for everybody involved to move you to a digital smartphone. But the problem is if you have Android, and Google owns Android? Yes. Android is their operating system. Wow. Uh, so, and cr- they have a, you know, a Chrome, when, oh, also if you use the Chrome browser, and 13% of people use the Chrome browser, um, that is essentially a vacuum cleaner. Basically, anything you do through that Chrome gateway, through that browser, they record everything. You know, if you use Google Desktop, um, basically it's a vacuum cleaner where everything on your hard drive, they make a copy of. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Go back for just a minute. What do you mean everything in your hard drive they make a copy of? If you use Google Desktop, basically um, what that service is, is it's bringing the search engine to your hard disk. And so they need to be able to get to your hard disk in order to search it for you. Uh, that's one of the products and services I strongly recommend that people not use <laughs> because generally, you know, when, when, you know, uh, there, there are a lot of good things about the cloud, but there are a lot of things where certain information should never go to the cloud. And, uh, um, and so, uh, um, but, but Google wants it all to go to the cloud because remember, we, we, we should now talk, um, uh, Kim here for a second is what is Google's mission? Because in order to understand Google, you need to understand Google's mission. And it sounds really altruistic and great. You know, they have a change the world mission, which is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. People go, gee, boy, that's so altruistic. That's so nice. They want to make the world's largest library and they want everybody to have it. What they, um, what the problem is, is there are two radical political values embedded in that mission that most all Americans abhor. And the first is, is is that Google wants to organize all your private information largely without your meaningful permission or knowledge and make it um, accessible to a lot of people. And the second thing is is they want to re- redistribute everyone's information property for free without permission or payment, and Google's the only one that can really monetize it. And so embedded in that mission are two is anti-privacy and anti-property rights, and also a monopolistic mission, because they're the only ones that really can then monetize it. And so um, uh, think of Google as this massive, massive vacuum cleaner that wants to collect everything possible. 
people have it's hard to to fathom how much data um, Google collects. I'll just try and put it in perspective for you. They um, uh, make mirror copies of everything on the internet. Their bots do a few times a day. And um, Google themselves described it and, and said, from the beginning of time to the year 2003, there were supposedly five exabyte, exabytes of information created. We can't, it's hard to imagine that, but it's all the information from, from beginning of time to 2003. And now Google copies that every two days, five exabytes in every two days. So it's an unfathomable amount of information they are collecting on everybody and storing on their um, servers. In 2006, I had a client who worked at JPL, and he told me that Google bought 1 million square feet on NASA's property to put their servers there. That was in 2006. Yep. No, and they have, um, they're, they're, they have the world's largest supercomputer. And basically how they do it is it's really quite ingenious. They, you know, Google does a tremendous amount of good and, and a tremendous amount of things that are, that are, that are um, positive and right. I'm just talking about the, hidden, the stuff they hide that people need to know about, the hidden costs, dangers, and risks. But they have data centers. We don't know how many, but probably dozens. And they make a copy of everything, and then they have three copies of it, and it's virtualized across all of the data centers. So they have something called Bigtable, which is their database, which um, resides and floats on all the data centers around the world. And, and so they don't know where anybody's data really is at any given time because they're optimizing for speed and efficiency. The problem I have with that is, from a security standpoint, their um, security by design is what I call too big not to fail. Because they're, you know, the old adage that we all know is, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Well, Google puts all of all of everyone's eggs all in one basket. So, you know, any security firm, anybody in, um, in the um, you know, classified section of the government will tell you that one of the best um, ways to protect yourself from a catastrophic um, breach is you compartmentalize information. So if someone does break your, your, your security, they, they only get a piece of it. They don't get the whole picture. Well, Google has designed their system that if you break in, you've got it all. And the Chinese in 2009 in December broke in and stole Google's entire password system. So it's basically going and saying, look, I know how you make all your locks and on your windows and doors, and I own you because I, I, I know your lock system. And they, can pro they, they got in, and who knows, they could get access to virtually anything because it's all in there in one big table. Now, you said that Google uses Linux as their yes. operating system. I thought Linux was supposed to be really good. Tell me why it's not an appropriate software environment for what Google's doing. Well, big thing is, is Google um, uh, believes in open source, and there's a lot of people that believe in open source, and there's a lot of good things that come out of open source. The problem is, though, when you have basically you want to be the repository of storing all the world's information, you're basically saying we're going to be the Fort Knox of everybody's private information and property. And therefore, you would think they would want like Fort Knox to protect it like Fort Knox. But remember, they really don't believe in privacy and they don't really believe in property rights and they really believe in fast universal access. So there's this huge conflict when it comes to their politics and their service is, is that um, most people view security as like number one or number two to them ultimately. 
And for Google, security just isn't, it's a, it's a conflicting priority. What they want is they want all the world's information available to everybody and they, they don't want, they want it to be done lightning fast. And security is a, is a bummer. Security is a drag. It's a drain. It's, it's a buzzkill for, for, for Google. Now they have to do a good bit of it, but they do security half-hearted. You were recommending that they have enterprise level security. What would that look like? It would just be uh, tremendously more robust. It would require, um, you know, because, but, it, but Google's not going to do that because, uh, you know, it, uh, it wants to make it free and easy. And so once again, there's that conflict, that inherent conflict of they have collected everybody's um, information and, and because it's so much and so intimate, the information they collect. That, that intimate information puts us all at danger. So I should step um, to, to a side and, and talk about why that's dangerous for all that to be information being um, collected. I was just going to ask you about that and also the misunderstanding that free is good. There's this confusion for people that when you get something free, it's good. Free comes at a price, but we can talk about that after you finish. Well, uh, let me segue because that's a good question. Is is that um, my big beef with Google is they have misrepresented their business. You know, they misrepresent that they work for users. They don't work for users. You users are the product that they sell to advertisers and publishers. So they have this inherent, you know, inherent conflict there, and uh, um, and and so it they they misrepresent. Um, on privacy too, that they are that they're real concerned about privacy. Well, what they're all about collecting everything they can on you so that they can uh, have the most relevant ads served to you. So they know what you want, what you think, what you believe, what you read, what you watch, what you intend to do. They know you better, Kim, than you know yourself because they track you 24/7, 365. And they never forget. Now, think. Let's also talk about all the creepy ways. And creepy, I use is the term that Google CEO often uses about whether or not they're crossing the creepy line. But they push the creepy line in privacy in every way. They track all your online movements and physical movements, largely without your knowledge or, or, or meaningful permission. They've eavesdropped on you um, uh, through Wi-Fi. They read your email, even if you don't use Gmail. They photograph your house. They want your face print. They want your voice print. They even want to be your wallet. And so that now leads me to, what's, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, that information can fall into the wrong hands. And it already has. There's four categories of wrong hands, and it's fallen into all of them. First is a rogue Google employee. We know there was a Google engineer that was stalking teenagers. Um, it can fall into the hands of hackers. We know the Chinese have hacked in from the front page of uh, the, uh, the Washington Post and the, uh, and the New York Times. Um, we know that, uh, um, uh, that they're cooperating with the NSA. It could fall in the hands of spy agencies because of the Washington Post front page story. Doesn't that mean they're actually working with NSA? I mean, yes. Okay. But NSA is accountable to nobody, not even the president of the United States. They're not even accountable to them. Generally, you know, citizens don't want to be watched. You know, NSA is supposed to be for foreigners and, and over, overseas, but there's a lot of concern whether it's used internally. And there's also the problem. Google has said that they can give up all this information to law enforcement without a subpoena because the privacy laws have not kept up with the Internet age. So um, what that means for anybody that's listening is um, for no fault of their own, but because Google collects and stores and keeps everything, 
They are more in danger of stalking, blackmail, theft, fraud, kidnapping, intimidation, harassment, or arrest than they would be if Google was responsible and wasn't this just vacuum cleaner of all information possible and a pack rat. So, um, you know, um, th- there are real costs to this. And so that's why, you know, what, what, the, what my book, Search and Destroy, Why You Can't Trust Google Inc., why I wrote it is, is that there is a very important and real other side of the story. I don't want to say that Google is, you know, is, is horrible. I, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that Google's evil. I'm saying that Google is not um, trustworthy like they say they are. They're untrustworthy. They're not ethical like they say they are. They're unethical. And they're not unbiased like they say they are. They're actually shockingly political. I also noticed that their interest in disruptive innovation, which is a part of what they assert that they do or provide, is really what you said, an abuse of power. But it's an abuse of power hiding inside of disruptive innovation. I can't believe the number of companies that are suing Google. Now, I understand that from Google's perspective, it's simply like sour grapes. They're just people that are upset and companies that are upset because they're not in Google's position because Google's powerful and huge. But the number of cases that you cited in the book for patent infringement, for stealing outright products and services, for intellectual property theft, for stamping on other people's copyrights was alarming and is alarming. Well, I'm I'm glad you saw that because that was one of my favorite um, chapters, the property chapter, basically what's yours is Google's and um, why I thought I had a, a real important book. Because I knew the privacy stuff was going to um, creep people out and was, a, and was a really important story to tell. But the property story was one that no one had really connected the dots. And um, when you read that chapter, you realize here is a history of a company who just doesn't believe in property rights for others. But it's a classic thing about how, how unethical Google is, is they don't follow the golden rule. They abuse everyone else's property rights while they jealously guard their own. Give a couple examples. Oh, I mean, just go to their um, to their um, website and look at their code of ethics. And their code of ethics is um, there's one um, one line about we need to respect other people's property rights, and there's um, you know whole sections about what the Google's employees' responsibilities are to protect their own property rights. And you know we know that they um, you know they they file patents and they. Uh, you know, have um, trade secrets, and they jealously guard. I mean, remember, they're also the company that says everybody should be open and transparent, and yet their um, core business is as secret as and as any top secret thing. They even have a new system called Google X, which is their top secret area. I don't begrudge a company that wants to have secrets. What I'm begrudging is is they have this double standard where they, when they find other people's secrets. They divulge them and make them public, or they steal them, or uh, and when they uh, and and they expect everybody else to be open with theirs, so their bots can come and copy everything. But when it comes to them, no, they're a huge wall, this dark black box. No one knows what goes on in that search engine. No one knows what goes on in their auction system. There's no accountability or oversight. And look, we know when there's when there's a lot of power and there's no oversight. We know human nature. We know, you know, history, it will be abused. Talk about the auction system. I thought that was very depressing. A lot of people were excited about their auction system. Talk about why it isn't really a proper auction system. Well, a great question. An auction, a public auction means that um, you have people bidding and the highest bid wins. 
and they just like almost everything Google does. There's there's an element of truth to what they do, but just like um, you know when we when you testify before a court, they tell you to say, "Did you um, please tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth?" Well, Google is very very clever, and they're very lawyered, and so they often say the truth, but they omit the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And that's how they're extremely deceptive. Like, you know, we, we should talk a little, um, you know, just, you know, they're, they're, they represent that they work for users when users' privacy is the product they sell to advertisers. They claim their search engine is unbiased, yet they rank their own products number one. They claim to be, um, you know, not evil, yet they disregard people, property, and, and the truth. Can we go back to that one yes, question please, briefly? Please. I just want to make sure that the listeners understand the issue with the auctions because like, auctions sorry, are yeah. exciting, and I just want you to explain that part. Yeah, and I apologize. I lost my train of thought there. That's all right. On, on the on the auctions, so what they do is um, it isn't. Let, let's take you, um, the two of us, as an example. Okay. If um, you and I are bidding on um, beach ball in order to win the auction, but since yeah, but you bring a million listeners and I bring a hundred listeners, okay? The auction is who can deliver the most clicks to Google, okay? So the auction algorithm is a optimization function for Google's revenue. So if I bid on Beach Ball $100 a click, and I have, a, what did I say, 100, 100 listeners, then I have, what, $10,000 that I'm willing or potentially willing to spend. If you have, a, uh, say, a million and you're willing to spend um, you know, ten, uh, $10 a click, and those are real high numbers, you would then be offering them $10 million potentially. So the auction is basically a way for them for, to, to get whoever would like to use their services, and then it goes to the, the, the one that can maximize their revenues. Now, that is not a problem if it was fully disclosed and if it was transparent and if they didn't call it an auction. But once again, they misrepresent their business. They're saying it's an auction, meaning the highest bidder went. Well, the highest bidder, I would have bid a lot more than you have for Beach Ball, but I wouldn't get it because I, I didn't bring as many potential um, uh, people that might click on it. So it's all about the distribution do. amounts. It's not about the highest bidder. It's rigged. Now, it's, it's rigged. I use the word rigged because that's a loaded word because they aren't transparent and they aren't fairly representing what it is. If they said this is our bidding algorithm, which maximizes you know who generates the most revenues, so that whoever wins it, you know, we can share the most revenue. That would be honest and forthright. But that's not a real auction because it's not the highest bidder wins. Exactly, it, it's not everybody's understanding of an auction. It's not what we even refer to as an auction. And you you get it. But see, the the, the important pattern I'm trying to communicate to everybody here is is that. Google generally has a, a shred of truth that it's sharing, and, it, um, and, and, and it's always the good side of the story, or it's always the benefit, but they hardly ever talk about the cost, or they hardly ever um, you know, fairly represent a lot of the terms that they use. And, you know, um, and, and so the auction is a perfect example, and it's a complete black box. They also, when it's a black box and there's no accountability, they can do um, you know, abusive things. Like, for example, um, you know, they were found that you know, people put like a monthly budget in there of how much they were willing to spend. Well, Google 
just change the algorithm so that it could be spent up quickly. And then they go back to the client and say, you know, your, your account's been spent. You need to add more money. And they go, well, wait a minute. How did that happen? I didn't agree to, um, to having you, you know, send me to all those different places and have, you know, be obligated for that. And so there's this, uh, um, the, the way it's all set up is it's like printing money. And since no one's overseeing it, there's huge incentive for abuse. Other things that other areas to abuse is they, um, you know, like uh, free information and free, you know, they like pirated information. You know, they, they don't encourage, uh, you know, um, pr- property rights. Well, they actually, you know, the Wall Street Journal said this, they were promoting freedownload.com for, and they would let people buy, you know, piracy or pirated content is their keyword in order to use the auction to promote um Copyright infringement. Now, Google's being investigated now, according to widespread press reports, for a criminal probe for promoting rogue pharmacy sales. Those are those you know websites where you see that are selling steroids or selling Viagra or other things, and they aren't a legitimate pharmacy. And Google was warned many years for this behavior, and now finally the Department of Justice and the Federal Drug Administration are cracking down, and Google has reportedly put away $500 million for a corporate um, criminal fine, which would make it the third largest criminal corporate fine in history. Obviously, after reading your book, between what they're doing in the publishing industry with books, their book project, the maps, the Android operating system, the Gmail accounts, getting into truth prediction, fact-checking, Google Instant, AdWords, Google Maps, it's a monopoly. I mean, it is a monopoly. Come on, is it or isn't it? It's absolutely a monopoly, and it is a monopoly like none we have ever seen before. Um, uh, because, you know, and I think it was the Intel, um, you know, chairman uh, that had this insight, is, is that Microsoft monopolized all of tech on the PC and on software on the PC. That was a big monopoly, a very powerful monopoly, and they got brought to heel by um, uh, you know U.S. antitrust enforcement and EU antitrust enforcement. What um, the Intel chairman saw is Google not only has that, where it monopolizes its horizontal kind of market, but it then is verticalizing into others. And so it is literally, um, you need to think of it, it's a monopoly that is going in 360-degree directions. Virtually everybody out there is a potential victim or competitor to Google. They have, they are the most ambitious company and monopoly we have ever known. They, you know, the, the better analogy is not just a, a, a monopoly. They want to be the company town for the world economy. Now, remember, a company town is, you know, it's like a mining town where somebody where, you know, they owned the, the apartments, they owned the store, they owned the gas station, they owned uh, the, the place where you got clothes. So basically anybody that worked for the company had to pay the company to do anything they wanted to do. Well, that's what Google is achieving, and they're, they're achieving it with just frightening speed. That, you know, if people ask me, you know, kind of what scares you about, uh, about Google is it is the lightning speed with which they are achieving their uh, nefarious goals, which is dominating and monopolizing um, new markets. And um, law enforcement and the public and others um, like me would be stunned how fast it could happen. 
and they don't appreciate it. And Google's just snickering the way, all the way saying, we know we can lock this up before anybody catches us. Why are they permitted to be in so many areas as a monopoly? Why are they not interacted with like Bill Gates and Microsoft had to be interacted with? Why aren't several aspects of their endeavors stopped immediately? Let's talk about the good news. The good news is they're being investigated on antitrust on three continents and that they have had a, a record five antitrust sanctions in the last 30 months alone. So law enforcement is beginning to focus on this. Second thing you need to understand is is that um, uh, Hal Varian is Google's chief economist. He wrote the book along with um, one of the key people of antitrust, who just happens to be in the DOJ antitrust division now, Carl Shapiro. And they wrote the book and had a chapter of how does a business avoid uh, um, uh, antitrust uh, um, threats in the digital age. So they basically hired one of the one of the economists and who's close friends with one of the enforcement economists at the DOJ. So they have for 10 years done their business to avoid antitrust, but they, um, but it's like anything, it's skirting the law. They know how to represent themselves so as to appear not to be violating antitrust. The biggest thing is, you know, they keep on saying, you need to always be focused on the users because antitrust concerns, you know, they want to make sure that users and the consumer are ultimately the beneficiary. So that's why you hear Google ad nauseum say, we only work for users. We only care for users. Well, they make their $30 billion in monopoly profit and revenues and and have 93.8% of the profits in search advertising in the United States because, um, uh, you know, they, they dominate that, that marketplace, just t- totally dominated. So are you saying they have somebody from inside the Department of Justice working for them? That's not what I'm saying. What okay, I'm saying I misunderstood they, yeah. that part. What I'm saying is, is that they have been extremely clever in portraying what they do in an innocent way. Uh, and they have done it from the very beginning. They know what they're doing. They know they're dominating. But but they use. They say, look, we're always working for users, and everything we do is innovative. Because in antitrust, there's a you know there's a reticence to enforce antitrust laws if there's innovation going on. And so what they've done is kind of um, you know they knew ahead of time what makes antitrust concerned, and they have done a legendary PR campaign and lobbying campaign to wrap themselves in we only care about users, which is the biggest misrepresentation they have, and saying we're like innovation incarnate. We are, you know, innovation just drips from us, and therefore... Um, you can't, you shouldn't um, uh, investigate us or sanction us because if you sanction us, then you're going to keep innovation from the world. So basic Google's, I call it goobris. Their hubris is, you know, it deserves its own own word. Their goobris is they can innovate better than the rest of the world combined, and therefore they should be able to monopolize. There's three companies or agencies, I should say, that have in their purpose to own X, whatever it is. For Monsanto, they want to own the entire food production realm, seed supply. And there are other agencies, and I'm not saying it is Raytheon, but Raytheon-like, that want to own the weather by 2050 
or 2020. So whenever you have an organization that says they want to own the blank, you know that it's going to be a far-reaching, very invasive takeover mission to own and control everything related to the thing that they're saying they want to own. And Google's mission is to organize the world's information. Yeah. It is the, the, the ambition in that is what you remember from the end of the book. It is a frightening ambition. You know, it is, it is, you know, I had to learn the word megalomania for this book. I mean, Google's founders are megalomaniacs. They believe, you know, um, you know they're, they see themselves at the center of the world's universe. Let's talk a little bit about Google Books Library Project. Because this flies in the face of everything related to copyright and the entire publishing industry. It potentiates the degutting of the whole thing. Talk about it. Well, one of the most offensive things that Google has done, in, in my view, is, is that they've copied 15 million books and counting without permission of the authors and publishers. Being an author myself, I certainly don't want them copying my book and you know, making it available to other people without permission. But in Google's mind, you know, they they believe that um, that they are ethical and that they have noble goals, and therefore anything they do, by definition, is ethical and noble. And even though other people say, "Excuse me, that's against law," "Excuse me, that violates the Constitution," they look at it and say, "But it's good. How can anybody be against making all the world's knowledge available to all, um, to everyone?" And um, what you had, you had the, you know, the United States government, you had the French government, you had the German government, you have all the publisher associations, all the, um, ever, all the um, author associations, you have songwriters, a bunch, all these people that create content and, and have to have their content paid for to make a living opposing this Google Book settlement. And so, um, you know, they started copying all these books, and, you know, if you... If, if, if they were truly noble and ethical, why do they do it so secretively and they don't let people see how they're doing it or whatever and, they, and they, you know, they, they're just doing it you know, secretively? How do you know that? Because they, um, there's articles about, um, that we know around the periphery that tell us uh, um, about this when people want to see where they're copying them and, and, and how it works, they, they shut it down and they won't let them. Uh, because they know they're doing something wrong, and they know they're they're continuing to do it, but they believe they know better. I mean, the Google Book settlement and their reaction and their persistence, even in opposition to the Department of Justice that opposed them twice, the U.S. Register of Copyrights, who oversees copyrights, um, opposed them on copyright law firmly, and a federal district court rejected the um, the Google Book settlement because it would give Google a monopoly and it would um, uh, you know allow them to have benefits from all this mass copyright infringement. And so, um, yet Google still believes it is what doing, um, you know, um, what is good for society, and they're unrepentant. And, um, and that just shows you they don't believe in other people's property rights. They, they think that books should just be available to anybody, and um, anybody that understands property rights, and that's most of America, knows that if you don't have any property rights and you can't earn money on, on what you produce, you're not going to have much incentive to produce anymore. So it's very, what they're doing with books is very insidious for the future of incentive 
to create quality content. I just don't understand how they could make copies of other people's books without permission and make it available to people. I don't get it. That is Google's way. Look, um, look at what they did with YouTube. You know, before, I, I must give credit, but um, Google Video, before YouTube came along, they actually checked for copyright before they uploaded the videos. And then they um, uh, decided, ooh, YouTube's taking off. And they had a big debate internally, and we know from the Viacom uh, court case, the undisputed facts, that there were people internally that says, look, we shouldn't buy YouTube. They're, they're 80% pirated content. Or, you know, that's a video grokster. And anybody that remembers their Supreme Court history, it was a 9-0 vote in the Supreme Court to shut down grokster as a, a mass infringement vehicle. So um, Google knew what they were buying when they bought YouTube for $1.65 billion when it had virtually no revenues. They were buying something that was a mass infringement site like Grokster, and um, they wanted to develop traffic. And once again, as a monopoly, they, they achieved that because they have um, now uh, you know, by far the dominant um, uh, Internet video uh, site. YouTube, you know, every, it's bigger, 10 times bigger than anybody else. Let's talk a little bit about Skyhook Wireless. I think this is a very important example. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you've asked about Skyhook because that's one of the more recent ones and one that I, I personally think when I, when I read them, I, I, I blogged about them and tried to give Skyhook Wireless a lot of attention because that was probably the most thuggish anti-competitive behavior that I've seen that Google's done. Usually Google has a little bit more velvet glove and usually does what it does badly behind the scenes so people can't witness it. Well, um, uh, I, but power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. And so, you know, arrogance gets worse as you get more powerful. And what they did um, to let people know what Skyhook does, Skyhook invented a location technology where what they did is they went around and um, um, found out where all the Wi-Fi signals were in the world. And they, they, you know, you know, tens of millions of, of miles of, of roads they drove around and recorded because if you know where Wi-Fi signals are, because when you drive by, and they only collected just the beacon, meaning the location of those Wi-Fi. They didn't invade privacy. They did it in a, a very non-invasive, very responsible way. And if you then have a map of those signals, then you can, if somebody's walking around and, and their device picks up one of those Wi-Fi signals or multiple ones, through um, Skyhook's patented algorithm and invention, they then have a way to locate people so that you can do location services. Well, Google saw that, and like they want to dominate maps, and like they, you know, they did Google Earth and they did Google Maps, and they, you know, do everything they can to to promote those to make them the dominant service. They saw Skyhook as a threat, and so um, they not only, um, you know, allegedly stole their patents and their trade secrets from having worked with Skyhook, you know, so they could learn what they would do and then you know go off and do it themselves, but they actually reached out to supposedly Motorola and Samsung and said, look, if you use Skyhook services on your handsets, we won't use you with Android. So that is an overt, thuggish, monopolistic behavior, if it is proven in court, where they basically forced Motorola and Samsung to break contracts with Skyhook because 
they wanted to dominate that marketplace. Are you telling me Skyhook had contracts with Motorola and Samsung and they were just canceled? They were canceled, and that's what the court case that um, uh, that um, Skyhook has sued Google over. And if what they allege is true, and you know I, I believe it is, because there there would be great great risk if they were to allege something like this with false information. You know that's that's real real serious. So um, you know it put the business you know, put them out of business, and you know you can do jail time if you perjure yourself on key facts. So I believe, you know, um, uh, what the, what the story is that they're saying, and if the court process goes through, I think, you know, Skyhook is the one where Google will be proven to be the most thuggish monopolistic behavior. Because if people remember back with Microsoft, it was when they when Microsoft really started throwing elbows and muscling what were called OEMs, operators, and uh, you know, and, and forcing them to to, to bundle things. And that's what Google was basically doing to here, to Motorola and Samsung, saying, we're going to force you to bundle Google's location technology, and we're going to force you to exclude the one that invented it, the one that has the patent on it, and the one you've already got a contract with. What is Skyhook doing now in terms of their business? Um, they're, um, you know, still, they're, they're a startup. They're, um, they're, they're supposedly doing fine, but they were hurt by this because those were a couple of their biggest contracts. So basically Google wiped out their upside and, uh, you know, now they're suing and hope, uh, you know, I describe them as, um, Google's Netscape because they are, uh, like, um, micro Netscape was to Microsoft. It was a perfect example of how the monopoly was abusing its monopoly position and Skyhook is a company that um, was, uh, you know, very badly treated, uh, both on property rights and in a monopolistic behavior. And I think ultimately their case will be a, a powerful one. Don't you think that Skyhook could end up being the other option for people? It should be. And, and actually, Apple, they, they provide some to Apple, and Apple is developing their own technology there. But it is, um, I, I think there is a non um, uh non-Android market for them to serve, but what we're seeing, because Google gives away uh, Android for free, we're seeing that it's it's already gone from you know zero to about 36% share in just a little over two years, and some predict that it'll go to 60, 70, 80% share, just uh, everything but Apple. And um, you know the the problem with um, with Android is so it's a lot like a ticking time bomb in the sense that that's another area where they um, infringed property rights, where basically what Oracle is um, is charging um, Google with is literally just copying and pasting proprietary, you know, patent information and putting it into Android. And if their allegations are true um, and, and what they've presented in their data, it's pretty damning evidence. And so Google is basically a pirated operating system that they're giving away for free. That's pretty heavy. What you're saying isn't Apple suing Google too? Yes, you read the book and read and read it well. Is um, uh, Steve Jobs used to be very close to the Google founders, and he was very bent out of shape because, like Google steals from everybody else, they stole from their friend, which is Apple. And um, you know, uh, CEO Eric Schmidt was on uh, um, Apple's board, and um, uh, Steve Jobs was very, very bent out of shape, and they are suing HTC, which is one of the makers of the droid handsets, right. for the multi-finger pinch movement, which is patented by Apple. And so 
uh, that could be another thing that could blow up on on, on Google because if um, HTC is viewed as violating that patent, the International Trade Commission can then ban importation of those devices with um, with the, that service on them. When you have relations with NSA and you can influence the political process and you have massive lobbying and massive teams of lawyers and you're in the position of Google, if you don't have certain standards, you can pretty much do whatever you want. And you're hitting the nail on the head is, is that you know, people say, what is your problem with Google? It's very simple. They need to be at least as transparent and accountable as everybody else and that they expect everybody else to be. And that would go a long way to solving um, Google's problems. Um, and then the other thing is is they, we need to expect that they respect people, pr- uh, privacy, property, and the rule of law. Those are just kind of the basic things that responsible, ethical, law-abiding corporations and people do to be part of our society. And so, um, you know, I, I want to keep the good things that Google does. Google does a lot of good things. It creates a lot of value. I just want them to stop breaking the law and stop being unethical and being trustworthy like they say they are. This would require, at least from what's inside your book and the detail that's there that you say is verifiable, it would require a whole new paradigm and new business practices. Uh, it, it would. You know, because, um, you know, first and foremost, it would require them to admit that they don't work for users, at least financially, that virtually all of their revenues come from, $30 billion, come from advertisers. Think about, you know, how we have a, a, real, a realtor and um, that it's illegal for a realtor that is representing the seller not to disclose that. Well, it's the same thing. Google, if you know, I'd, a lot of my concerns would, would would go away on this point if they fairly represented who they were. If they just said, "Look, you know, um, we've got this great search engine, but let's be clear, we we don't work for you. We have we financially work for the people that uh, you know that uh, that pay for the search engine," and then at least people could, uh, you know, users would be armed with the truth and fair representation. And fair representation really works. A smart consumer, I'm a free marketeer. I don't want heavy regulation. So, But the thing is, is they need heavy law enforcement because they just don't respect the rule of law or property rights or people. Can we talk about Bill Gross? Not to add insult to injury, but I had no idea where advertising search really came from. I thought it was very informative. Talk a little bit about Bill Gross and is it Overture? Yeah, it's okay. it's go to that was then uh, um, changed to overture, and this guy is is the original genius of what is what we know now as Google AdWords and, and AdSense. So the whole auction idea for um, keywords was not Google's. I mean, Google gets credit for having you know Larry Page invented PageRank, which is the using links to best organize information. Huge genius um, innovation. And then Sergey Brin, the other co-founder, deserves huge credit for being a brilliant, one of the greatest genius in math for the internet in order how to scale the internet. However, for three years, they had no business and they really weren't caring about building a business. And then Bill Gross came along who had a business that was, you know, auctioning keywords and, um, and monetizing web traffic. And he went to, you know, to kind of see if he could work with them, but he did it, you know, 
uh, obviously confidentially, confidentially, and then he didn't hear from them, and then all of a sudden Google was discovered to not only be you know, replicating their patented service and stealing his trade secrets, but they also then did it to steal Bill Gross's main number one client, which was AOL, which started Google on, on its way. So when you read the book, you will see a very consistent pattern that Google takes other people's property as its own and makes a lot of money from it. And then uh, it basically says, you know, beat us in court if you can. Now, because they wanted to go public you know, in 2004, Google decided to settle. And that it cost them a quarter of a billion dollars in stock paid to, to Bill Gross and GoTo, which was then owned by Yahoo, to go away. And I would argue that it would cost them a whole lot more if they weren't owned by Yahoo because um, Yahoo's founder um, was very good friends with um, the Yahoo founders. I mean, the, the Google founders. So um, you know, here's a man who, who is, really deserves to be, the in history, remembered as the person who figured out and invented Google's keyword auction, but it'll always you know, be rewritten by Google historians as Google having invented this. They didn't invent it. They stole the idea from Bill Gross and Overture. Did they steal the idea or the already created application? I'm not clear. Well, um, I believe they they um, they stole they stole the trade secret and um, and and violated the patent. How did they have access to the trade secret? I believe it was done, and we don't know all the details of this because it was obviously one of Google's reasons to uh, to settle this is they didn't want all the details to get out. But from our research, what we can tell is you know they uh, um, they certainly violated uh, GoTo's property rights to the tune of that they felt they needed to pay a quarter of a billion dollars uh, to rectify it. I mean, that's not chump change. That would be one of the biggest patent payoffs in history. I know you have expressed very clearly your concern and the obvious issue with central planning and how central planning and a virtual level and structural level can turn into tyranny very quickly. Could you explain that to us? Sure. Really, so that we get it. So the, the analogy here is, is that I use is, is that um, Google is becoming like the former Soviet Union. And that's pretty provocative. So why do I say that? Well, what computer um, programming is, is it is a program that has a predetermined outcome. You know, let's remember, computer does, and algorithms, they take a program which is designed to, you know, quantify or choose between certain outcomes. Google likes to say that, oh, you know, algorithms don't have any bias. They're just, you know, they just produce whatever, you know, um, uh, people most want that's relevant for that. The thing is, is any program has bias from its creators. And so what Google is doing is it is trying to design algorithms for virtually everything that goes on um, online. And embedded in those algorithms are Google's biases of what outcomes they want, of what types of content they view as most, most valuable and should be found, of what services should be used and um, used most. So know that um, you know, and artificial intelligence, which Google is big into, is the same thing. It is a, uh, um, it's a plan of taking, 
you know, technology and saying, these are the outcomes that we are trying to design into the technology. Now, the central part of it comes from Google's mission that wants to organize all the world's information. And they already have organized all the world's information, and they um, are not stopping and organizing anything new that comes up. And so what we're seeing is the greatest centralization of information in human history. You know, the Alexander Library 2,000 years ago is nothing compared to this. And because uh, that was just one dimension of knowledge, where this is the you know, dimension of you know, almost every imaginable dimension of knowledge. And so what Google um, is doing is centralizing information more than we have ever had before and more pre-planning digital outcomes than we have ever seen before. And when you put the two together, you're basically creating the opportunity for what the, um, the Soviet Union dreamed to be able to do, and that was centrally plan out the economy of who does what, what's needed, and whatever. And because Google tracks everything, they have this kind of virtual omniscience of knowing most everybody's supply and demand for most every good. And so they look at it and say, we think we can be, you know, we're the smartest people on, on the earth, and we are ethical, and we are good, and we should be the ones that allocate everything to society so that we can reach nirvana. I call them techtopians. And, you know, um, they believe they can produce outcomes that are better than a free market um, uh, competition. Now, they're self-funded, right? Yeah. And they're, you know, they, um, you know, they're, they're, they're less a company than they are a political movement. And um, that's what the concern I have. Now, there's two, just in the last part of this interview, the two things I like to kind of warn people about is that centrally planned knowledge gives them power in two ways. One is a monopoly. They can basically um, uh, corner markets, rig markets. They can crush competitors, and they can pick winners and losers. And they, and they definitely always pick Google themselves as the winner in these new verticals. And nobody else can compete if Google ranks themselves number one because anybody that um, follows this knows that um, you know, about 35% of all clicks, uh, people click on the number one rank. So over time, if you rank yourself first, you, you know, all that business will float to you. But the biggest probably fear and concern I have about Google is, is that their ability to manipulate elections. Now, do I have evidence that they've done it yet? No, I don't. But what I'm saying is is that they have an unbelievable amount of political intelligence. Remember, almost all candidates have been given for free by Google YouTube, and they use a YouTube channel. They all have um, the free ad management um, software. They generally get free Google Docs, and they get free Gmail and all this. So Google has... Um, near-perfect knowledge of the most important political intelligence of almost every candidate of every party. By you know, They know the funders, the supporters, the voters, the target voters, the target strategies. And the opportunity and temptation and capability to abuse that is off the charts. If they are human, like anybody else, they have temptation. And the power that they could do to tilt the election and would be very hard for people to know is frightening because what they're now doing is making everybody's search results personalized. Well, how would you know they were gaming it if they're just serving up uh, personalized things? There'd be no way to compare it. And so um, I just want people to remember as we close what the, you know, in the year 2000, the election, presidential election was decided by 300 odd votes in Florida. 
In 2004, several thousand votes in Ohio. And um, so it doesn't take much. And they know who every voter is and who every likely voter is, and they know all of their hot buttons much better than anybody else because they have this almost pure, perfect knowledge of the political landscape because almost all of these politicians have unwittingly allowed themselves to be completely tracked by Google. Doesn't Bing do the same thing or a similar thing in a great part of what we're talking about? A sliver. Um, if they on, on search, they might know some of that, but they only know it on about 10% of people where Google knows it on most everybody. And they don't have a mission to collect information in the rest of their business. The rest of their business is aligned with users because they want users to buy their software. So they are, they're more aligned. Do they have some of this ability? Yes. But Google, no, you know, um, Microsoft doesn't have a YouTube. It doesn't have a, um, uh, you know, the, the, all the other products that Google does. I get what you're saying, that Bing is an application of the many products that Microsoft has. Google is this far-reaching, I want it all structure and consciousness that's wanting to take over everything related to information, really. Exactly. And I, I feel there's a lot of people out there violating privacy. The reason I wrote a book about Google is that they're unique and they're doing it more blatantly, pervasively, and invasively than anybody else by far. You had mentioned in the book several explanations and issues related to fair use. Do you want to explain that to the public, why we need to be aware of something called fair use and how it's used and misused? Well, fair use is, you know, that if we're, you know, if you or I were to blog, we can take a sentence out of an article and we can quote from it and we can put the link in. Or if we, you know, want to, you know, um, uh, you know, play a song at a, you know at a, at a birthday party or something, or to make a spoof of something that you know generally you know a student copying uh, um, you know one sentence and if they cite it correctly and give credit to the author, that's fair use. Now, what Google has done is basically it says anything that it does because it is for- forwarding the benefit of humanity, it classifies as fair use. And so what Google has done as the world's largest and only organizer of all the world's information is they've taken the crack of what fair use is, the crack in the door, which you know normally is like an inch, and they've kicked the barn door down and ran through it with, you know, all of what Google does. And so it's um, you know, Google is is once again, it takes a sliver of truth or a sliver of good, and then it um, you know, takes advantage by misrepresenting most everything else. How do people who are on Google Maps get off of Google Maps and Google Earth? There's a lot of people that have real issues with it. Uh, it's not easy. And, um, you know, I don't have a good answer. That's one of the things that, you know, kind of Google invents that they think it's a good idea. And, um, you know, in, in Germany, they have a law where you can ha- take your house down from that. But uh, Google doesn't allow that here in the U.S. So they, once again, remember, they believe in radical um, transparency. And they, they, they believe that, um, you know, that information should be put out there. It doesn't matter that it makes you more vulnerable to burglars or to stalkers or anything else like that by, you know, allowing somebody to virtually plan, you know, uh, how they get to your house and get in it and, you know, where they, you know, where they could, you know, hide. 
I mean, it's just one of those things where, you know, Google has automated and facilitated and made more efficient all sorts of bad acts. And if they were more responsible about trying to prevent the bad in, pr- in promoting the good, it would be a lot easier to forgive. But they're, they have a very cavalier attitude to anything with privacy and, and security when you really look at what they do. Even though they, they say they talk, they talk the talk, they just don't walk the walk very well at all. And I wanted to ask you this question at the beginning, but we kind of got right in there, started running. But how did your concern move toward a deep level investigation transforming into this book? Once again, Google is unique. I've never seen anything like this. You know, they are Big Brother Inc. I mean, I loved George Orwell's 1984. I, you know, um, I am a big student of the former Soviet Union. I'm a, you know, I, I, I look at society and I, um, and I, I see Google if if it isn't transparent or accountable, and if it isn't made to respect like everybody else does, people, privacy, property, and the rule of law, basically. Basic standard good citizenship that any uh, you know law-abiding person or company should follow. If they don't do that, we're in big trouble. All I'm saying is abide the law. I think you're saying more than abide by the law. I think you're also talking about being honorable and deserving the trust that it's asking us to imbue and to provide. Yeah. That is because they have represented themselves with Don't Be Evil as the most ethical corporation out there when it is probably the most unethical. And that's, once again, the deception that they have done. I mean, they serially trample on the golden rule, one of the most basic elements of, of, uh, of ethics. They treat everybody the way that they would never want to be treated themselves. Before you have people on the board and advising you, you have to really know what they're doing, who they are, and what's being transmitted. Because I think you can have people going back and forth as an interloper between companies, passing information. And so I think you do need to know people's political agenda. I think you do need to know more about what they're trying to accomplish. My concern is Google's very clear political, radical values, which I've gone back to, is they believe in radical transparency over privacy, and they don't believe in, um, you know, property right um, uh, the way that most people do. And those are the, that's the politics that I strongly and strenuously dis- um, disagree with, because I think most all Americans uh, know that if you don't have privacy, you don't have safety, security, or dignity, and you don't have individualism to have, you know, that part of that dimension of democracy. And if you don't have property rights, um, you don't have a free market. um, uh, And if you don't have privacy and property, you're Google surf. I guess you're not worried about your page ranks on Google, are you? (laughs) Uh, You know, it would would sell books if they messed with me. So I think they've they've decided that they, um, the best thing to do is to just bite their tongue and not give me any publicity. And lastly, the Wi-Fi or the Y-Spy phenomenon. I know we talked about the Wi-Fi hotspots. We talked about the fact that the Wi-Fis can pick up what people are doing. But what is Y-Spy? Two aspects of Y-Spy. The first was that um, they um, went around and eavesdropped on everybody's Wi-Fi communications. Unlike Skyhook, that was just um, saying 
capturing the beacon that says, yes, there's a Wi-Fi device there. What Google did is captured um, every signal that came out, including passwords, emails, and any other private information. So they vacuumed up whatever was there. And that um, led to uh, investigations in over a dozen countries around the world and really got people upset because they were doing it for over a period of three years in 30 countries and not telling anybody. And then now we, there's a Wi-Fi 2 scandal where um, uh, people have learned that if you use Android, they are tracking your location without your permission or knowledge a thousand times a day. That's every two minutes. However, we just found out also something about Apple. I'm an Apple user and lover, but we found out that Apple also tracks you. The iPhone tracks you too. Well, um, and that's where you need to put it in perspective is that um, uh, Apple did make a mistake. They came out front and said a mistake. They, said, they also made a very bold assertion that says, we don't track, we don't want to track, that's not our model. And what they were doing is they were recording stuff that was on your heart, on your Apple iPhone, and they realized that they shouldn't be caching that information, and they uh, said it was a bug and a problem, and they fixed it. How do we know they fixed it? After this fix, you can't get to what you got to before. It doesn't exist. But the difference with Google is Google's explanation was, well, you know, we can do this and we're going to continue to do this. So, um, uh, you know, they had a completely different response. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to defend um, everything that Apple does, but Apple has proven to be much, much more concerned about privacy and security than Google. They're not even in the same solar system. I agree with you. Again, I'm an Apple lover. But I must tell you, we found out yesterday about iCloud, which on a lot of levels sounds exciting. But what Steve Jobs said is that the computer now is only considered a device in their paradigm. And therefore, the iCloud will automatically capture everything in all devices. And that is very disconcerting. Next step. I know this is about Google, not about Apple, but there are developments that concern me as well there. Even though they are a universe difference, a galaxy difference in their consciousness, their structure, their processes, and their protocols, but it concerns me on a different level there. Well, I agree, and I thank you, Kim, for this opportunity. This has been a super interview. Listen, Scott Cleland, it was a pleasure and such an illuminating book. Very disconcerting, but very illuminating. Search and Destroy, Why You Can't Trust Google, Inc. You're very courageous, Scott. Thank you for being on the show, and thank you for sharing with us things we have to begin considering to have a whole new decision process about what we're going to feed from now into the future. Thank you so yes, much. Yes, and if I can just tell people they can find it at searchanddestroybook.com or at Amazon or on Apple iBook or Barnes & Noble on the Nook. So you can get a hard copy or the online version. Thank you, Scott Cleland. Thank you so much.